I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Aller. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. It's Sunday, but we're sitting in a closet recording a podcast. Do-do-do-do. <laughs> Dear listener, that bleep that you just heard was not a curse word. <laughs> I had to edit out Heather's use of the trademarked title for the big game happening this weekend. That makes me hate it even more. <laughs> like, I sang that stupid song because whatever I do at the end of our little introduction is always a surprise to Ken and honestly to myself. I don't really plan it. It's whatever comes out of my mouth. And uh, I just sang that song and then he goes, I got to look something up. I think that you can't say it. So... Fuck you, NFL. <laughs> Apparently, at least I mean, probably, That's insane. probably it would be a non-issue for us because we're like an independent podcast. We're an independent podcast that <laughs> with that no sponsors has or anything. Like forty regular listeners, like we're not. <laughs> We're, we're not making huge waves, but apparently the NFL is incredibly litigious about it when, like, big brands use it without permission and without doing something that is specifically promoting the big game. That is absolutely insane. It's fucking and bonkers, There are right? far too many people in that stadium right now, and as an artist who has been out of work for a, going on a year now, next month... Um, and that they're letting people sit in the stadium sometimes because I'm just like, really? Like, I can't do my plays, but you can throw the ball around and, like, literally jump on top of each other. But, okay. Um, I know that most of the people there right now have been vaccinated and are um, frontline healthcare workers, which I can't thank them enough. And I'm really glad that they gave them an opportunity. But I also know they were selling tickets to a certain amount of people. And those people should not be there. So that's all. Um, that's all I'm going to say about the event. Now that I know that I can't even say the damn event's name, <laughs> which really makes me angry. Uh, anyone who knows me personally knows exactly how closely I follow <laughs> football, which is to say not. So um, I I would like to with with my massive amounts of education and all of the details I've picked up over the previous season. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm going to make some predictions. So my prediction is that um, a team of goats <laughs> is going to be let loose during the halftime show. And they are going to um, eat too much of the grass and leave giant piles of poop all over everything, <laughs> delaying the second half of the big game. Oh my God. <laughs> and the delay will last long enough that uh, the game won't actually get finished until uh, Monday afternoon, at which point um, both teams' quarterbacks uh, will have gotten too drunk to finish the I, game. I'm, gonna, I'm cutting this. <laughs> that just, okay. That's my prediction. That's your prediction? Yep. My, my prediction is um, that... Uh, Aliens will land during the third Ooh, quarter. I like that one. Um, I'm not going to go into details. I just uh, I think uh, aliens will land in the field in the third quarter. Not not <laughs> on, going into details. On top of Tom Brady's head. Not not going into details. Only spoiler I will give is butt probes. Anal probes for football players. <laughs> 
Oh, no. That takes, like, smacking the butts to a whole new level. Anyway. <laughs> so that was fun. Um, so, go ahead. Feel free to write in and let us know if we were right. Yeah, let us know. Um, I'm I'm intrigued. Um but uh, speaking of weird stories and fun things, um, we have a promo for everybody uh, this week. That's right. So uh, I believe uh, it was last week's, not not the most recent, but our our uh, six month anniversary episode. Two weeks ago. Um, we had guests on our show, and uh, it was the wonderful ladies of Wine, Dine, and Storytime. Um, they played True Crimes and a Lie with us, and it was a freaking blast. Uh, Nydia, Dana, and Cindy are great. And, and ladies, I'm still working on our winner's wall. I have not <laughs> forgotten about you. It does take me a little while to do anything on the website, so you should expect your names and dedicated bricks on the winner's wall to go up probably early March of 2023. Yeah, 2023. So we wanted to make sure we uh, put in their official promotion, so here it is. This is Wine, Dine, and Storytime. I'm Nydia. I'm Dana. I'm Cindy, and we're your hosts. Have you ruined a family gathering by asking what wine pairs well with eating a husband? Are you the CEO of TMI? Have you ever been kicked under the table because you brought up your favorite dinner topic, atrocities throughout history? Then this podcast is perfect for you. Each week, Dana and I share stories based on topics that include true crime, historical shenanigans, unexplained mysteries, and all things fascinating, while our amateur chef Cindy prepares themed dinners and pairs wines based on those topics. Find us, the Wine, Dine, and Storytime podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a follow. So make sure you go listen to them. They're fantastic humans and their show's great. And you might get some new recipes that are delicious. I know we're going to um, make that uh, that sweet potato, sweet potato cheesecake. cheesecake. You yep. already pulled up the recipe. I've got the recipe. I'm it's so ready excited. to go. We're just waiting for the right night. I'm very excited. So... Make sure you go listen to them and tell your friends and tell your friends about us and tell, like, that's how podcasts get audiences is really their listeners. That's that's how I found up, found out about any podcast I'm a fan of, and um, it really is word of mouth. So if you like what you hear from us... Uh, use your mouth to say the words. <laughs> use your mouth to say the words, like we say so many on these, these uh, little productions we do. <laughs> For better or worse. For better or worse. <laughs> uh, so... So we're going to get to what we do. So uh, what we do is we read classic short stories... Um, by authors that you've probably heard about in school and like you might have a leather bound gold tipped copy of to look really smart on your bookshelf but you never read it so that's what we do and we read them and then we read them cold so we usually end up laughing at them so here we go um, we have a new author this week Great. that I will be having Ken read and it is Robert Louis Stevenson Ooh. Yes, indeed, he do, Robert Louis Stevenson. So uh, you probably of, of, know that name. Of Treasure Island fame. Of Treasure Island, of Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. I know it because I did the musical <laughs> Jekyll and Hyde, honestly. And um, I, okay, I have to give a shout out to my um, teacher, who I believe listens to this sometimes, Carolyn Van Zanti. She was my uh, English 10 honors and AP English teacher in high school. And we read... The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And then we had to do a presentation about it. And being the dumb musical theater nerd, uh, not dumb, the awesome musical theater <laughs> nerd I am, 
Uh, I definitely did a presentation on the discrepancies between the uh, book, the book and, and the, the musical. musical. <laughs> Full on with clips from the musical. And uh, yes, it was fantastic. So, Miss Van Zanti, if you're listening, and I think you actually do sometimes because we're good friends on online. Thank you for having me read Robert Louis Stevenson. Anyway, um, we're reading Robert Louis Stevenson. Great. So, um, Robert Louis Stevenson was born um, in Edinburgh, Scotland. And I actually didn't know he was Scottish until now. Um, and he was born on the 13th of November, 1850. Was it a Friday? I don't know. Because he's Friday, like the 13th. You're going to look it up? I'm going to look it up. All right, he's looking it up. No, it was a Wednesday. Oh, he was born on hump day. That's fun. (laughs) So he was born to a lighthouse engineer. That was his dad, Thomas Stevenson. And his mom was Margaret Isabella. And uh, she was a teacher, kind of. She was like a teacher's assistant. Um, So his dad was actually like barely literate. And his mom was actually the more educated of the two. Um... So he was born Robert Louis Balfour Stevenson. Balfour. Mm-hmm. That's a great name. Yeah. Why would you drop that well, one? I don't know. And he said- Be at, Robert Balfour Stevenson. Are you kidding at me? At age 18, he changed the spelling of Lewis because it was originally L-E-W-I-S to L-O-U-I-S. Okay. For whatever reason. And he dropped Balfour. In 1973, so when he was 23, he dropped Balfour. I'm guessing he needed three names. Yeah. And since he'd already gone to the uh, trouble of changing the spelling of Lewis, he had to keep Lewis. So Robert Lewis Stevenson. Wow. Okay. So he dropped it when? In like 1870? 1873. 1873. So it's been falling for 150-ish years. I think I might catch it. I might become (laughs) Kenneth Balfour Sandberg. Fucking do it. So, yes. So, his dad was a lighthouse engineer, which I think is a cool job. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Honestly. And actually, that was, he was in a line of, that was the family profession. Um, Hell of a family business. Yeah. yeah, That's kind of fun. I mean, but he was like, nope. Uh, His mother was part, uh, they were like part of the gentry, which is like kind of the upper class. So, it's kind of an interesting marriage. So, they must have really liked each other (laughs) because... um, she was educated, as we said, um, and her dad, so um, Robert's grandfather, was a minister for the Church of Scotland. And uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, I'm just going to call him Robert from now on. Sure. Out. Robbie. Uh, Robert spent the rest, uh, uh, a lot of his childhood um, and holidays with the maternal grandfather because they're religious. So for, you know, Christmas and stuff. And he, he says, quote, Now I often wonder what I inherited from this old minister. I must suppose indeed that he was fond of preaching sermons, and so am I, though I have never heard it maintained that either of us love to hear them. <laughs> <laughs> so we like to talk, but we don't necessarily want to hear what we're saying. Better at talking than listening. Yep. So, uh, Stevenson was an only child. Robert was an only child, which is actually pretty rare at the time. Um, And I think it was because he was born, he was um, kind of sickly. Um, The family had a lineage of weak chess. 
like like so they had like a lot of um, bronchitis and like pneumonia in the family and whatnot. Cardiorespiratory yeah. issues. Yeah. So uh, he was actually sick a lot, like all throughout his life. Huh. Um, he was strange looking and eccentric as well. So like every time he went to school, like at six, and then when he changed schools at eleven and went to the Edinburgh Academy, he was kind of like the outcast because he was very skinny his whole life because of like his heart issues and yeah he just had a lot of issues his whole life and that will come up uh frequent illnesses kept him away from school even so he would like go to school and then be gone for two weeks and get private tutoring and he was also a late reader so he didn't actually really start reading until he was eight okay um which i'm assuming has to do with the disruption in his education because of his illnesses um but uh his mother and his nurse uh are on record saying that he would dictate stories to them so he'd make up stories um i don't know if he'd stand there and like pretend to read or if like (laughs) he would just like tell them stories but he was a storyteller from a very young age um so his father was actually very proud of his interest in storytelling. And when he did start reading and writing, um, he was writing stories. And this is because his dad, when he was younger, um, was also a writer and storyteller. But his father told him he found his, his, his so Robert's grandpa right. found the stories when he was young and told him, quote, Give up such nonsense and mind your business. Damn. So. <laughs> so Grandpa wasn't nearly so cool. Grandpa wasn't nearly as cool, um, but Dad really loved it, and he actually paid for the printing of Robert's first publication when he was 16, entitled The Pet, The Pentland Rising, A Page of History, 1666. Oh, that's awesome. Um, which was an account of uh, a rebellion that um, happened, so... Um, so yeah, so he, he was very supportive. So he had a very supportive family, um, and his mother, he was, he was very close with his mom. So, uh, well, she was an academic. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so Stevenson moved away, um, like from home and like started to branch out into the world after he was out of school and he began to dress more bohemian and he wore his hair long, and he wore velveteen jackets, <laughs> <laughs> and he attended parties, not in conventional evening dress. So he was one of those. Right. So um, he looked like he was in a Led Zeppelin cover band. Yes. Um, and he would actually attend. He actually went to uh, pubs and brothels. So he was like all he was. He was like living the bohemian life, Ooh. and he came to reject Christianity and declared himself an atheist in 1873. Wow. This did not go great in the family. So. Um, his father came across the Constitution to a group he and his cousin belonged to called the Liberty Justice and Reverence Club. So the, his dad approached him after he found this pamphlet and was like, what, what, what's going on? And uh, Robert said he no longer believed in God and he was tired of pretending. And he said, quote, am I to live my whole life as one falsehood? And his dad said, quote, you have rendered my whole life a failure. Wow. And his mother says when, like, in an account that she spoke about, said that finding out he was an atheist was the heaviest affliction to befall her. So. Well, I mean, that 
probably was not the best way to handle that kind of news. Uh, he ended up having a really great relationship with his family later in his life, so I'm assuming they came around. Well, <laughs> or that's good. His success. <laughs> like, or he bought them off. <laughs> they're like, okay, atheism's cool. Um, but what I found to be one of the most interesting things is in 1889, so we've jumped forward quite a bit, Yep. he moved to Samoa, to the Samoan Islands, because, okay. because of his illness, his health, yeah. they'd always said he should live in a warm climate. And he moved to Samoa and actually became like immersed in the culture and um, uh, he said that it was in Samoa that the word home first began to have a real meaning because wow. he'd been bouncing around his whole life. Yeah. And he ended up taking a native name, which I'm going to butcher right now. I apologize. Tusitala, which is Samoan for teller of tales. Oh. Um, and he began collecting local stories and wrote a book about the uh, Samoan culture called the Bottle Imp. Uh, That's super cool. It's really cool. So, again, he was super immersed in the culture, and he had this political awakening, uh, and it was really rough because the rivals to the Samoans at this time were the British, the German, and the United States. And he, Well, at least at least they didn't have any major world powers vying for <laughs> Not at all. Um, but he understood this being Scottish, and he mentioned this a lot in his writing of, like, um, the Scottish Highlands uh, was an indigenous clan society that was overtaken by... So by the Brits. He compared his, like, Scottish heritage, so his William Wallace, like, clan heritage to what was happening in Samoa. Uh, and he actually started reporting and writing letters to uh, the Times and other, like, oh. reputable newspapers about what was happening in Samoa. Okay. Um, he died at age 44. He'd always been sick. Yeah. Um, so this is a really fun thing about his death. <laughs> sounds really fucking weird. <laughs> this is a fun thing about his death. Um, but he was in Samoa, and it was December 3rd, 1894, and Stevenson was just standing there talking to his wife and straining to open a bottle of wine, and he suddenly said, What's that? And his wife's, and he then asked his wife, does my face look strange? And then he collapsed. And he died within a few hours. People believe it was a cerebral, cerebral hemorrhage, a stroke. Yeah. Because his half is like a numbness. So uh, he was only 44. The Samoans insisted on surrounding his body with a watch guard during the night and burying them on his shoulders to nearby Mount Via where they buried him on the spot overlooking the sea. On his tomb, it says, Under the wide and starry sky, dig the grave and let me lie. Glad did I live and gladly die, and I laid me down with a will. This will be the verse you grave for me. Here he lies where he longed to be. Home is the sailor, home from the sea, and the hunter home from the hill. And he was so loved by the Samoans, they actually uh, translated it into Samoan next to that. Wow. And his tombstone. So he's laid to rest um, on a mountain. But that is my story uh, of Robert Louis Stevenson for today. 
Um, again, he lived a really fun life uh, with lots of uh, lots of friends in the literature world. And um, but today, you will be reading Thrawn Janet. Thrawn Janet, which is All my right. mom's name. Hi, Janet. Hi, Jan Lawler. <laughs> um, but you'll be reading Thrawn Janet, and it was recommended to us um, again by one of our favorite recommenders, uh, Elia Ahmed. Oh, great. In Thinking Horror. And this has been on our list for a while, and we haven't read it. So it was first published in 1881. All so, right. Thrawn Janet. Let's start Let's this start fire. Let's start the fire. Thrawn Janet by Robert Louis Stevenson. By Robert Louis Balfour Stevenson. <laughs> the Reverend Murdoch Solis was a long minister of the Moorland parish of Balweary in the Vale of Duel. A severe, bleak-faced old man, dreadful to his hearers, he dwelt in the last years of his life, without relative or servant or any human company, in the small and lonely manse under the hanging shawl. So I should have mentioned this before you started, but this is one of two stories that Robert Louis Stevenson ever wrote in Scots. We're not reading that one, clearly, because it's English, but there might be some interesting uh, cadences. Oh, like he, he wrote it in, like, in like Scotch English. Scotch English, um, originally, and then it was... then I Translated believe, into I English believe English? I he translated it. Um, I'll have to look that up, but, like, it was one of two short stories he ever wrote in, like, the original Scotch dialect, so there might be some weird cadences. So you're saying I should be reading this entire thing in a Scottish accent? Yes. <laughs> That's what you get for making me read Germans all the time. <laughs> In spite of the iron composure of his features, his eye was wild, scared, and uncertain. And when he dwelt in private admonitions on the future of the impenitent, it seemed as if his eye pierced through the storms of time to the terrors of eternity. Many young persons coming to prepare themselves against the season of the Holy Communion were dreadfully affected by his talk. <laughs> All the kids are scared of the, of the priest. Yep. <laughs> Scary old minister. Scary old minister, because he had a creepy eye. He had a sermon on 1 Peter. The devil as a roaring lion on the Sunday after every 17th of August and he was accustomed to surpass himself upon that text, both by the appalling nature of the matter and the terror of his bearing in the pulpit. So he was fire and brimstone yeah, preacher is what I'm getting. Guy, well, I mean, it makes sense since uh, RLS became an atheist and was like, and watched grandpa like. And grandpa was a minister and. Screaming things yeah. he didn't necessarily like. <laughs> Uh, the children were frightened into fits, and the old looked more than usually oracular. Oracular? Yep. Ooh, that's a word. I'm going to need that one. O-R-A-C-U-L-A-R. Oracular is an adjective um, relating to an oracle. <laughs> Thanks. So it was like... Huh. 
So he was. The children were frightened into fits, and the old looked more than usually or- oracular, and were all that day full of those hints that Hamlet deprecated. So the old so, people looked at him like he was a fucking god. The, well, or the old people, the young were terrified, and the old people were confused. Were well, <laughs> were were looking particularly um, sage and perhaps resigned to the futility of life. Of life, like (laughs) Jesus. That's what I'm taking from it anyway. Okay, I like it. The manse itself, where it stood by the water of duel among some thick trees with the shaw overhanging it on the one side and on the other many cold Moorish hilltops rising towards the sky, had begun at a very early period of Mr. Solis's ministry to be avoided in the dusk hours by all who valued themselves upon their prudence. <laughs> And guide men sitting at the clacken, clacken, the clacken, clacken, the kraken, c l a c h a n, sitting at the clacken alehouse. Uh, it's a in Scotland or Northern Ireland is a small village or hamlet. So the oh. local, the local pub. So the corner pub. <laughs> the only pub yep. in this tiny, ha- in this tiny place. And guide men sitting at the corner pub shook their heads <laughs> together at the thought of passing late by that uncanny neighborhood. There was one spot to be more particular, which was regarded with special awe. The manse stood between the high road and the water of Duel. With a gable to each, its back was towards the Kirk town of Balweary, nearly half a mile away. In front of it, a bare garden hedged with thorn occupied the land between the river and the road. The house was two stories high with two large rooms on each. It opened not directly on the garden, but on a causeway path or passage giving on the road on the one hand and closed on the other by the tall willows and elders that bordered on the stream. Causeways are never a good... You know this is going to be a scary-ass story because there's a fucking causeway in it. When he uses the word causeway instead of cute little path? Yeah, because it might, you know, flood so you can't leave. (laughs) (laughs) Also, why would you buy property in a place that, like, occasionally just floods so you can't leave? I don't know. (laughs) Ask everyone who lives in Florida. (laughs) I guess. Point taken. (laughs) (laughs) All those Key West commercials that have been on TV, like, move to Key West. I'm like, I saw what happened to Key West, like, five years ago. Fuck off. It looks real pretty, but come on. It opened not directly on the garden, but on a causewayed path or passage, giving on the road on the one hand, and closed on the other by the tall willows and elders that bordered on the stream. And it was this strip of causeway that enjoyed among the young parishioners of Balweary so infamous a reputation. So it's a haunted house. It's the house that you want to live in, actually. Yeah, because I'm the witch next door. Exactly. So apparently you would buy a house in this location. Um, 
maybe. The minister walked there often after dark, sometimes groaning aloud in the instancy of his unspoken prayers, and when he was from home, the manse door was locked. The more daring schoolboys ventured with beating hearts to follow my leader across that legendary spot. <laughs> I dare you to go to yep. the minister's house. <laughs> well, yeah, because, I mean, he invokes, like, God and spirits and stuff. Yeah. No wonder the, yeah, I wonder if most, I wonder if a lot of like religious leaders are haunted. I wonder if I were to, uh, you know, to die and have unfinished business and uh come back as a, you know, as a ghost, as as a haunting, whatever. whatever. Um, if I would be more likely to, to haunt, um, religious leaders or highly devout people um, because of their belief or if I would be more likely to if I'd be less likely if I'd be more likely to avoid them figuring they're gonna like no, cross these, me over these are these are people who are like these are people who are connected to this this um, this force this energy that I am uh, they're more likely to I don't know, fight back or get what's going on or or whatever. Or do we get a choice? Or do we get a choice? Because <laughs> maybe Are we uh, stuck? maybe like if you die holding a teddy bear, you haunt that you teddy haunt that bear. Teddy bear. Because <laughs> let me tell you, fucking haunted toys is real. <laughs> I like holy shit. This atmosphere of terror surrounding, as it did, a man of God of spotless character and orthodoxy was a common cause of wonder and subject of inquiry among the few strangers who were led by chance or business into the unknown outlying country. But many, even of the people of the parish, were ignorant of the strange events which had marked the first year of Mr. Solis's ministrations... (gasps) And among those who were better informed, some were naturally reticent and others shy of that particular topic. Now and again only, one of the older folk would warm into courage over his third tumbler and recount the cause (laughs) of the minister's strange looks and solitary life. Okay, so there's a reason this minister is fucked up. So that was all prelude. Okay. Oh, shit. Now we're going to find out why this man is, like, terrifying. Now there's there's a little image of a um, uh, heart with a squiggly thing in the middle of the page. And then we break into... Dear listener. Hi. Full disclosure. At this moment, I have just finished reading the first uh, page and change of the story. That's what you have heard happen. What actually happened is that I then went on to read the next several pages of the story, which, in fact, is written in Scott's English. What happens in the story is, after those first few pages, uh, it jumps to telling 50 years ago the story of Mr. Solis. Unfortunately, it is being told from the point of view of a Scottish guy drunk uh, in a pub. Probably talking at the local, at that corner pub. Um, and Robert Louis Stevenson wrote it in the dialect and of it's, Yeah, it was, it was written in dialect. Um, <laughs> it was rough. So we, we got, oh. A couple pages in. A few, a few pages in. And we understood um, about, you know, 
65% of it. It was going okay, but in the end, we made the executive decision to go out and um, find a version that had been translated into English English. (laughs) So, uh, what you're going to hear from here on out is the rest of this story having been translated into regular English, not Scots English, because I think you'll just enjoy hearing it more. However... Uh, if you are a patron of ours, we're going to go ahead and throw <laughs> yeah, we are. the 15 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever it is, of me trying to struggle through and that stuff me, written in like, dialect. And then me basically like, recapping what just um, happened. So we're going we're gonna to throw that up on our Patreon. Um, that said... On with the story. On with the story. So flashing back 50 years. 50 years since, when Mr. Solis came first into Balweary, he was still a young man, just a child, the people said, full of book learning and wonderful at exposition. But (laughs) as was natural in so young a man with no life experience in religion. The younger sort were greatly taken with his gifts and his eloquence, but the older, concerned, serious men and women were moved even to prayer for the young man, whom they took to be a self-deceiver. Interesting, because 50 years later, all the old people who were young then, who loved him, are now like, oh, because they know what happened. Made nervous by him because they they know know what's coming. And the kids are like, what the fuck? So, there's a nice mirror moment. The younger sort were greatly taken with his gifts and his eloquence, but the older, concerned, serious men and women were moved even to prayer for the young man, whom they took to be a self-deceiver, and the parish that was like to be so ill-supplied. It was before the days of the moderates, dismal for them, but bad things are like good. They both come bit by bit. Mm-hmm. And there were people even then that said the Lord had left the college professors to their own devices, and the lads that went to study with them would have done more and better sitting in a peat bog like their forebears of the persecution with a Bible under their armpit and a spirit of prayer in their heart. Okay, Gilead. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very uh, Handmaid's Tale, like... Educated people, like, are the devil, and, yeah, you should just, like, snuggle up with your Bible and move on with your life. And and go sit in a bog. And go sit (laughs) in a hole. (laughs) There was no doubt, anyway, but that Mr. Solis had been at the college for far too long. He was careful and troubled for many things besides the one thing needful. He had a load of books with him. More than had ever been seen before in all the parish. I want to point out that in the Scotch version, it literally said he had, he a, had a feck, feck of books. Of, so a fuckload of books, <laughs> which I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> that is the one thing I'm going to point out from the Scott version because I remember that. I was like, did you say feck? That means f- fuck. He had a fuck ton of books with him. <laughs> More than had ever been seen before in all the parish. <laughs> And a miserable chore and carrier had with them. For they were likely to have crushed the devil's ox between this and Kilmackerley. 
They were books of divinity, to be sure, or so they called them, but the serious were of the opinion that there was little need for so many when the whole of God's word could fit in the crease of a plaid cloak. <laughs> Lord. <laughs> then he would sit half the day and half the night as well, which was hardly decent, writing, no less. Damn you. And first they were afraid he would read his sermons, and since then it proved he was writing a book himself, which was surely not proper for anyone of his years and slight experience. Oh, young people shouldn't be reading and writing. They should be snuggling the Bible in a pit. They should be sitting in a bog. (laughs) With the Bible. With the Bible. But not reading it, just like having it tucked under your arm because it's like osmosis. Yeah. Osmosis? Or at least if you're going to read it, you should have the decency not to think about it too much. Yeah. Stop thinking, young people. Anyway, (laughs) it behooved him to get an old, decent biddy to order the parsonage for him and to cook (laughs) his small dinners. And he was recommended to one Janet McClure. Did they just call a woman a biddy? Yes. Oh, no. (laughs) And so far left to himself as to be over-persuaded. There were many who advised him against it, for Janet was more than suspected by the best citizens of Balweary. Long ago she had given birth to a dragoon's child. She hadn't taken communion for maybe 30 years. This woman gave birth to a dragon's child? No, dragoon. What's a dragoon? A uh, dragoon is a, a, an English soldier. Oh, she had sex with a soldier. <laughs> yeah. And then she gave, what? Ha- I don't know what happened to that baby. But this woman's old. So it was like she gave birth like 30 years ago? Yeah. Why are they trying to hook up the minister with this like 50-year-old woman? That's something that got lost in the Scots translation. Um they're not trying to get them married. Oh, she's going to be his housekeeper. Oh, she's going to be like his like mom. <laughs> like his 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 yeah. maid, his housekeeper, yeah. yeah. To help him, you know, like stay on the right path. Okay. I thought they were trying to hook them up in the other one. <laughs> the children had seen her mumbling to herself up on Keys alone in the twilight hollow. It was an uncouth time and place for a god-fearing woman. Howsoever, it was the squire himself that had first told the minister of Janet, and in those days he would have gone far out of his way to please the squire. When the people told him that Janet was kin to the devil, he wrote it all off as superstition. And when they showed him the Bible and the Witch of Endor, he would argue it back down their throats that those days were all bygone and that God had bound the devil. Okay, so Salem happened. We already burned, or we drowned or burned all the witches, um, and uh, it doesn't well, exist Well, and anymore. moreover, God has already dealt with the devil. The devil doesn't walk about yeah. on land. Y'all oh, are so being even, superstitious. Even before Salem, because that was proven yeah, to be what, a whole bunch of hoonay. What, what he's saying is like, no, this isn't real. There's no such There's thing a, as witches. Yeah. You superstitious old fucks. Yeah. You live in a small town. Read a fucking book. Oh, wait. You think that's you, the devil. You backwater hicks. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Well, 
When word got out to the village that Janet McClure was to be the parsonage servant, the people were very cross with her and him both, and some of the ladies had nothing better to do than get around her doorposts and accuse her of all that was known against her from the soldier's bastard to John Tampson's two cows. This is why women and people in general should read and have hobbies, because if they don't have anything to do, they all they have to do is Go spread gossip. rumors and yell at the village like sad, lonely woman. <laughs> Not cool, ladies. Not cool. Also, I wonder what happened to those cows. <laughs> she was no great speaker. People usually let her go on her own pace, and she let them go theirs, with neither a kind good evening nor a kind good day. But when she opened up... She had a tongue that would deafen the miller. Yeah, girl. Up she got. Then there wasn't an old story in Balweary, but she would force someone to listen to that day. They couldn't say a thing, but she could say two in response, till at the end of the day, the ladies up and caught hold of her and clawed the coats off her back and pulled her down the town uh, to the water of duel to see if she were a witch or not. Fuck these ladies! Swim or drown. What the fuck? The crone shrieked till you could hear her at the hanging wood, and she fought like ten. There was a good many ladies who wore bruises the next day, and many for longer, and just at the fiercest of the fighting, who should come up for his sins but the new minister? Hell yeah. Women, said he, and he had a grand voice, I tell you in the Lord's name to let her go. Janet ran to him. She was wild with terror and clung to him and begged him, for Christ's sake, save her from the bitches. <laughs> and they, for their part, told him all that was known and maybe more. <laughs> okay, that's my favorite part of this entire translation so far, because I'm pretty sure when you're reading it in the Scots, I said, they are bitches. Well done. Oh, wow. Bitches. <laughs> Woman, says he to Janet, is this true? As the Lord sees me, says she, as the Lord made me, not a word of it, other than the baby, says she. I've been a decent woman all my days. So she admits to having she, had oh, yeah. a child out of wedlock with a soldier. but Which, you know, I mean, isn't great at the time, but it does not make you a fucking doesn't witch. Doesn't make you a witch. <laughs> Come on. Will you, says Mr. Solis, in the name of God and before me, his unworthy minister, renounce the devil and his works? Well... It would appear that when he asked that, she gave a grin that thoroughly terrified those that saw her, and they could hear her teeth grinding together in her cheeks, but there was nothing to account for it one way or the other, and Janet lifted up her hand and renounced the devil before them all. Um, all I can see when you read that description is Wednesday Adams in the Adams Family Values movie when she smiles. <laughs> Coming out of the, like, happy hut that they shoved her in. And they're like, can we see a smile? And she's like, make her stop. She's scaring me. <laughs> like, it's like, oh, my God. 
And now, says Mr. Solis to the ladies, get back home, one and all, and pray to God for his forgiveness. That's right. And he gave Janet his arm, though she had little more on than a chemise, and he took her up to the village to her own door like a proper lady, and her screeching and laughing was scandalous. So she's half naked, being led by the arm by a preacher after she's almost been drowned for being a witch. She's denounced the devil, and she's laughing the whole way home. Yeah, she's having a freak out. You know. I mean, in fairness, yeah, I I'd be would. having a fucking full-on panic attack in every way. There were many grave people busy praying that night, but when morning came, there was such a fear that fell over all Balweary that the children hid themselves, and even the men stood and peeked through their doors. For there was Janet, coming down the town, her or her likeness, none could tell, with her neck twisted and her head on one side, like a body that has been hanged, and a grin on her face like a hanged corpse cut down. Oh my god, like the girl in uh, fucking The Haunting of Hill House remake. Yes. <gasps> yes. Ew! No! By and by, they got used to it, <laughs> and even asked her to tell them what was wrong. But from that day forth, she couldn't speak like a Christian woman, but slavered and gnashed her teeth like a pair of shears. And from that day forth, the name of God never came to her lips. As much as she would try to say it, it wouldn't work. Those that knew best said least, but they never gave that thing the name of Janet McClure. For the old Janet, by their way of seeing it, was in the middle of hell that day. Okay, so she renounced the devil and now she all fucked <clears throat> up. Like. Yeah. So she was a witch. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Or she had a fucking stroke that night and never went back to herself and all, it, all of them just assume She's of the devil, and really she just needs medical attention. But the minister was neither going to hold up or restrain himself. He preached about nothing but the people's cruelty that had given her a stroke of the palsy. He belted the children that tormented her, and he had her up to the parsonage that same night and lingered there at his lane with her under the hanging wood. Well... Time went by, and the idler sort commenced to think more lightly of that black business. The minister was well regarded. He was always writing. The people would see his candle shining down by the dual water after twilight at evening. And he seemed pleased with himself and lackadaisical once again, though anybody could see that he was dwindling. As for Janet, she came and she went. If she didn't speak a great deal before, it was reasonable that she should speak less. She bothered no one, but she was a hideous and frightful thing to see, and none would have offended her for all of Balwary. 
Around the end of July, there came a strange period of weather unlike any ever seen in the countryside. It was cloudless and hot and heartless. The herds could not climb up the black hill. The children were too exhausted to play, and yet it was windy, too. The with devil bursts here. of hot gusts that rumbled in the glens and bits of showers that quenched nothing. Uh, it sounds like the Midwest in the summer. I hate it when it rains, but it rains hot. just enough to add humidity to the heat. Like Kansas Fuck City, that. when we were in Kansas City. That was, it's, the humidity there was nuts. That's <laughs> that's all over Philly, too. Oh, yeah. Um, well, the in summers Virginia, in Philly, it's yeah. awful. Yep. We always thought it was simply thundering in the morning, but the morning came, and the next morning, and it was always the same weather, oppressing man and beast alike. Of all that had it bad, no one suffered like Mr. Solis. He could neither sleep nor eat, he told his elders. And when he wasn't writing at his weary book, he would be roaming aimlessly over all the countryside like a man possessed, when anybody else was more than happy to keep cool indoors. How'd they keep cool indoors? They didn't have no air conditioning. <laughs> well, I mean, in the shade. I'd go jump in the lake. <laughs> don't, they, don't they live by the ocean? Or at least by a river. Get in the water! These people are not the smartest. <laughs> that has been established. Yes. Above the hanging wood, in the protection of the Black Hill, there's a small plot enclosed with an iron fence. And it seems, in the olden days, that was the graveyard of Balweary, and consecrated by the papists before the blessed light shone down upon the kingdom. It was a favorite haunt of Mr. Solus, anyway. There he would sit and consider his sermons, and indeed it is a cozy spot. Well, as he came over the west end of the Black Hill one day, he saw first two, then four, then seven carrion crows flying round and round above the old graveyard. Nope. They flew light and heavy and squawked to each other as they went, and it was clear to Mr. Solis that something had excited them from their routine. He wasn't easily frightened, and went straight up to the wall. And what should he find there but a man, or the appearance of a man, sitting inside on top of a grave? He was of great stature, and black as hell, and his eyes were extraordinary to see. Mr. Solis had often heard of black men, but there was something off about this man that daunted him. Hot as he was, he took a kind of cold shiver in the marrow of his bones, but he spoke up in spite of it, saying, My friend, are you a stranger in this place? The man answered never a word. He stood up and lumbered towards the wall on the far side, but he always looked at the minister, and the minister stood and looked back, till in the blink of an eye, the man was over the wall and running for the shelter of the trees. So he's like the ghost of like Christmas yet to come, 
but really fast. <laughs> For some reason, I immediately imagine that um, he's all burnt, like crispy. Oh. That's where my brain went. Well, when you said the the, the sentence hot than cold, like as hot as he was, I went, so it's Idris Elba? <laughs> so as hot as it was, I was cold. <laughs> And I just saw this beautiful black man sitting on a fucking gravestone. I was like, oh, well, hi. <laughs> How you doing? <laughs> Mr. Solis, he hardly knew why, ran after him. But he uh-uh. was sorely fatigued with his walk and the heat, the unwholesome weather. And run as he would, he got no more than a glimpse of the man among the birches till he wound down to the foot of the hillside, and there he saw him once more, going hop, step, and jump over dual water to the parsonage. Okay, so the dual water's like the little river. It's the, the river, creek. Yeah. yeah. Mr. Solis wasn't pleased that this fearsome vagrant should be so familiar with Balweary Parsonage, and he ran all the harder, in wet shoes, over the stream and up the walk. Over the stream and up the walk to chase the demon man. (laughs) (laughs) And now we have a plan. Where's Janet? This is not gonna end well. (laughs) I have a feeling we're all going to burn in hell. Whee! That was a good song. (laughs) That actually went better than I thought it was gonna. Trademark. (laughs) But nothing of that devil of a black man was there to see. He stepped out upon the road, but there was nobody there. He went all over the garden, but no, no one. At the back end, and a bit frightened, as was natural, he lifted the clasp and entered the parsonage, and there was Janet McClure before his eyes with her twisted gullet and not so pleased to see him. (gasps) Since then, he has always remembered that when he first set eyes on her, he had a cold and mischievous shiver. Janet, says he, have you seen a black man? A black man, she said. Save us all. You're out of your mind, minister. There's no black man in Balweary. This is the whitest place in the world. (laughs) But she didn't speak plain, you must understand, but grumble-mumbled like a pony with a bit in its mouth. (laughs) So it would have been more... A black man, she said. Save us all. You're out of your mind, minister. Well, he says, Janet, if there was no black man, I have spoken with the accuser of the saints. And he sat down like one with a fever, and his teeth chattered in his head. Bollocks, says she. Shame on you, minister, giving him a splash of the brandy, which was always <laughs> on like, her. She's like, you just need a drink, honey. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers to that. Then Mr. Solis went into his study among all of his books, 
It's a long, low, murky chamber, deadly cold in winter and not very dry even at the peak of summer, for the parsonage stands near the stream. So down he sat and thought of all who had come and gone since he was in Balweary and his hometown and the days when he was a child and ran merely on the hilltops. And that black man always ran in his head like the chorus of a song. All the more he thought, the more he thought of that man. He tried the Lord's Prayer, and the words wouldn't come to him. <gasps> Uh-oh. And he tried, they say, to write at his book, but he couldn't come up with anything. Don't be possessed. There was a time when he thought the black man was at his elbow, and the sweat stood upon him as cold as well water. Then there were other times when he came to himself like a christened babe and was troubled by nothing. The upshot was that he went to the window and stood glowering at dual water. The trees were unnaturally thick, and the water lies deep and black under the manse. And there was Janet, washing the clothes with her cloak pinned up in kilt fashion. <laughs> she had her back to the minister, and he, for his part, hardly knew what he was looking at. Then she turned round and showed her face. Mr. Solis had the same cold shiver as twice that day before, and it dawned on him what the people said, that Janet had died long ago, that this was a walking revenant of her clay-cold flesh. Oh, no. Oh. Oh, no. He drew back a bit and scanned her narrowly. She was stomp-stomping the clothes, crooning to herself, and, oh, God preserve us, but it was a fearsome face. Soon she sang louder, but there was no man born of woman that could tell the words of her song. And all the while she looked sideways down, but there was nothing there for her to look at. There came a nauseated disgust through the flesh upon his bones, and that was heaven's advertisement. But Mr. Solis just blamed himself. He said to think so ill of a poor, old, afflicted woman that hadn't a friend in the world other than himself. And he prayed a little prayer for him and her and drank a little fresh water, suffering as he did from heartburn, and went to his naked bed in the twilight. This was a night that has never been forgotten in Balweary, the night of the 17th of August, 1712. It had been hot before, as I have said, but the night was hotter than ever. The sun went down among unnatural-looking clouds. It was as dark as hell, not a star, not a breath of wind. You couldn't see your hand before your face. How dark and, is hell? <laughs> uh, it depends on whose version you're I guess. thinking I, about. Whenever I think of hell, I think it's like there's fire everywhere, so it's really light. It's just really fucking hot. You know what's interesting? What? Older writings often reference how cold it is. 
See, that makes sense it's because cold it's underground. And dark and it's underground. Yeah. Well, like when you think of like Hades, like the like mythology of that, you take a river into like into the fucking yeah earth or wherever, mm-hmm. and you're underground. So yeah. I would assume that's dark as hell. And there are dark as hell. <laughs> there yeah. and there are there are references to like flame and fire being punishments in hell, but Got that it. the place itself is actually okay. dark and cold and and um. See that would suck more for me. As, so. <laughs> so in in a in a sort of like no light and no warmth is able to penetrate. Yeah, and you can't see, and yeah. like that's terrifying. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. So that's how dark hell is, everybody. You're welcome. But that night was hotter than ever. The sun went down among unnatural-looking clouds. It was as dark as hell. Not a star, not a breath of wind. You couldn't see your hand before your face, and even the old folks threw the covers from their beds and lay gasping for their breath. With all that he had upon his mind, it was very unlikely Mr. Solis would get much sleep. He lay, and he tossed and turned. The good, cool bed that he got into burned his very bones. Sometimes he slept, and sometimes he woke. Sometimes he heard the time of night, and sometimes a hound yowling up the moor as if somebody was dead. Sometimes he thought he heard ghosts chattering in his ear, and sometimes he saw phantom lights in the room. He behooved, he judged to be sick, and sick he was. Little he suspected the cause of his sickness. As the night waned, he got a clearness of mind, sat up in his nightshirt on the bedside, and began once more to think of the black man and Janet. He couldn't well explain why, Maybe it was the chill in his feet, but it came to him like a flood that there was some connection between the two and that either or both of them were specters. And just at that moment in Janet's room, which was nearest to his, there came a stamp of feet as if men were wrestling, and then a loud bang, and then a wind went rushing around the four quarters of the house, and then all was once more as silent as the grave. Nope. <laughs> Mr. Solis was afraid of neither man nor devil. He got his tinder box and lit a candle. <laughs> he got and... his tinder box. Wonder if he swiped left or right. <laughs> <laughs> I would uh it's been a while since I've been on Tinder, but no, I believe means left. Uh I would swipe a hard left on Janet and the evil spirit that's hanging around her. And really this entire like this whole town. 50 years. <laughs> uh, well, I would I would just swipe left on this town and, like, find another parish. Yep. Honestly, it sounds like a not great sounds place. like a rough place to be sounds working. like not a good place to hang out. Swipe left on that. Yeah. Get your tinderbox and get the hell out of there. <laughs> he got his tinderbox and lit a candle and was over to Janet's door in three bounds. It was unlocked and he pushed it open and peeked boldly in. It was a big room, as big as the minister's own, and provided with grand old solid furniture, for he had nothing else. There was a four-poster bed with antique tapestries and a beautiful cabinet of oak that was full of the minister's divinity books, 
and put there to be out of the way. And a few of Janet's things were lying here and there about the floor. But no Janet could Mr. Solis see, nor any sign of a struggle. In he went, and there's few who would have followed him, and looked all around and listened. But there was nothing to be heard inside the parsonage, nor in all Balweary Parish, and nothing to be seen but the great shadows turning around the candle. Yuck, yuck, yuck. And then, all at once, the minister's heart knocked loudly and stood stock still, and a cold wind blew among the hairs of his head. What a hideous sight it was for a poor man's eyes, for there was Janet, hanging from a nail beside the old oak cabinet. Her head always lay on her shoulder, her eyes bulged out, the tongue protruded from her mouth, and her heels were two feet clear above the floor. Oh my God! God forgive us all, thought Mr. Solis. Poor Janet's dead. Uh Uh-uh. He came a step nearer to the corpse, and then his heart nearly tottered inside his chest, for by what contraption it would hardly seem firm for a man to judge, she was hanging from a single nail and by a single worsted thread for darning hose. Oh my god, no. It is an awful thing to be alone at night with such prodigies of darkness. Yeah. But Mr. Solis was strong in the Lord. He turned and went his way out of that room and locked the door behind him, and step by step down the stairs as heavy as lead, and set down the candle on the table of the stairfoot. He couldn't pray. He couldn't think. He was dripping with cold sweat, and nothing could he hear but the dunt-dunt-dunting of his own heart. He might maybe have stood there an hour, or maybe two. He minded so little, when all of a sudden he heard a low, unnatural bustle upstairs. No. A foot went to and fro in the chamber where the corpse was hanging. Then the door was open, though he knew well that he had locked it. And then there was a step upon the landing, and it seemed to him as if the corpse was looking over the rail and down upon him where he stood. He took up the candle again, for he couldn't bear to be without the light, and as softly as he could went straight out of the parsonage and to the far end of the causeway. It was still dark as hell outside. The flame of the candle, when he set it on the ground, burnt steadily and clear as in the room. Nothing moved but the dual water seeping and sobbing down the glen and those same unholy footsteps that came plodding down the stairs inside the parsonage. He knew the foot all too well, for it was Janet's. And at each step that came a bit nearer, his blood grew colder. 
he commended his soul to him that made and kept him. And, O Lord, said he, give me strength this night to battle the powers of evil. By this time, the step was coming through the passage of the door. He could hear a hand sweep along the wall as if the fearsome thing was feeling for its way. The willows tossed and moaned together. A long sigh came over the hills. The flame of the candle was blown out, and there stood the corpse of Twisted Janet. With her gross grain gown and her black nightcap, with the head still upon the shoulder and the grin still upon the face of it, living, you would have thought, but dead, as Mr. Soulless well knew, upon the threshold of the parsonage. It's a strange thing that the soul of a man should be woven into his perishable body, but the minister saw that, and his heart didn't break. She didn't stand there long. She began to move again, and came slowly toward Mr. Soulless, where he stood under the willows, All the life of his body, all the strength of his spirit, were glowering from his eyes. It seemed she was going to speak, but lacked words, and made a sign with the left hand. There came a clap of wind, like a cat's spitting hiss. Out went the candle. The willows screamed like living people, and Mr. Solis knew that live or die, this was the end of it. Witch, crone, devil, he cried. I charge you by the power of God, be gone. If you be dead, to the grave. If you be damned, to hell. And at that moment, the Lord's own hand out of the heavens struck the horror where it stood. The old, dead, desecrated corpse of the witch so long kept from the grave and herded round by demons, flared up like sulfur fire and fell in ashes to the ground. The thunder followed, peal on throbbing peal, the roaring rain upon the back of that, and Mr. Solis leapt through the garden hedge and ran with scream upon scream for the village. That same morning, John Christie saw the black man pass the great tomb just before six. Before eight, he went by the change house at Knockdow, and not long afterwards, Sandy McClellan saw him rushing smartly down the hills from Kilmacrely. There is little doubt that it was him that dwelt so long in Janet's body, but he was away at last. And since then, the devil has never troubled us in Balweary. But it was a bitter dispensation for the minister. Long, long he lay raving in his bed, and from that hour to this, he was the man you know today. Power of Christ compels you! The power of Christ compels you. Yeah, that's very much a um. He just exercised an, an exorcist, her. like an early iteration of the exorcist. So my 
so she was always kind of sketchy, but like she was kind of the weird woman in town. Yes. And then those women like tortured her and tried to kill her. And then she like denounced Satan, basically. And then I think she went home and like killed herself and hung herself. And the spirit, um, and then was taken over by a demon. Over by a demon because she was like that's that's my that's my interpretation. I uh, um, and then she just wandered around for fucking who knows how long and just was like, hey, (laughs) yeah, 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 yeah. Really cool story. Um, I do. Next time we read a Robert Louis Stevenson, yeah. and I think there will be a next time. Yes, but next time we read a Robert Louis Stevenson short, um, I want to make sure it's one that he wrote in English English, not one that we have to get translated yeah. from Scots English. Yeah, I agree. Um, I agree. This was a super interesting story, though, and, and the, definitely makes me want to read more. The story was... I'm interested because of his... Uh, the choice of writing about a minister, because his great-grandfather... His grandfather. His grandfather was a minister, and I'm sure you heard a lot of stories. I wonder if his his grandfather had like a like weird stories or anything that that was drawn on in any way. Like, um, but I find it interesting that like God's hand reached out and like Robert Louis Stevenson's a like active atheist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I mean, he wasn't his entire life. No. Um. And, and God's hand can mean a lot of things. God's God's hand can you can yeah you can you can interpret that in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, even if he one hundred percent doesn't believe, like there's still well weird like things in the world. J.R.R. Tolkien didn't believe that, that orcs and, and goblins <laughs> and elves and dwarves were real. That's that's true. Like, are you, can, you sure? <laughs> you can write about a thing without believing it's I'm reality. I'm calling Tolkien up. I want to know. Uh, great. You're gonna have to call an old priest and a young priest. Uh, yeah. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> Sorry, that's an hey. exorcism. You're gonna need, uh, some sort of medium. Hey, Colbert, you wanna come do this with what's me? His, what's his name? Uh, uh, the, the, the TV medium, Edwards. Oh, no, I don't want him. I want, um, the character, uh, um. Are you, or do you know, <laughs> a medium? Can you get in contact with the deceased? We would be willing to have you on the podcast. You can uh, join us. You can join us via Zoom, and we will have you attempt to get in contact with J.R.R. Tolkien for us. Stephen Colbert, if you're listening, you're probably really into this. (laughs) I love how nerdy he is about Lord of the Rings, so I just know he'd be all about it. Yeah. Well, and on that note, um, we're actually going to uh, wrap this up so we can go downstairs and watch tonight's special edition of The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. We're going to go watch that and, uh, you know, see if aliens landed on Tom Brady's head. Yeah, that'll be fun. I hope they did. Um <laughs> So, uh, so follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook, on Instagram, on TikTok. Uh, please share this episode if you enjoyed it um, with friends and family. Uh, go to our website, campfireclassicspodcast.com, or you can email us at 5050artsproduction at gmail.com. Or become a patron on Patreon, and uh, you can hear me try to read 
the first chunk of this story in Scots English. It's ridiculous and it's pretty fabulous. Well, I enjoyed it until we didn't know what was going on. <laughs> I almost never had any idea what was going on. <laughs> Uh, and of course, tell your friends, tell your loved ones, tell your enemies. Um, just Campfire tell people. Classics podcast is redonkulous. Get it. Get it. Get it. Get it. Get it. Get it. <laughs> I think we're done. Get it. Get it. You get it. Let's get the hell out of here. Thank you for listening. This has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf.